0: That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you
1: there. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky broadband. Switch your home to Sky broadband today. See sky.ie for more.
2: It's Wednesday, April the 27th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I'm joined today by Jennifer Bray and Pat Leahy from our political staff. Good morning to you both.
3: Good morning. Buongiorno.
2: Um, We are going to take a tour around the houses of a few issues which have cropped up over the last um, week or so, Pat. Um, I want to start with one which caught my attention a few days ago, and that is that... Uh, It's projected that the results of the census, which has just been held, will show a continuing increase in the population of the state. And the Constitution requires a relationship between the number of people who live in the state and the number of TDs who are elected to the Dáil. And to cut a long story short, that means we're going to get a bunch of new TDs
0: or extra TDs.
2: Um, Is this a good thing?
0: It's certainly something that will be eagerly watched by people in Leinster House because, you know, something that is often easy to miss in our observation of politics is just how focused individual politicians are on their chances of re-election and the uh, you know the disposition of demographics in their own uh, in their own constituencies so they watch obsessively you know the uh, the boundary revisions that occur after every election uh, it can be decisive for politicians or at least have a huge bearing on their uh, their chances of re-election you know you see a an area in which a particular td is strong moved from one constituency to another and that can be the difference for many tds between uh, between life and death between retaining their seat and uh, and losing it, and you know, as I say, it's it's you know, it's often not apparent to the outsider the extent to which that consideration informs every waking hour of uh, of politicians, which I suppose you know is you know probably not unique to Ireland, but the Irish political system is so responsive to voters' needs that our TDs, I think, have to spend a disproportionate amount of time wondering uh, and and uh, catering wondering what their constituents are thinking and catering to their constituents needs because you know the worst thing that any you know anyone can say about an Irish TD is that they are out of touch and any TD that is believed by his voters to be out of touch will find himself losing his seat fairly quickly uh, so something that alters the electoral landscape as significantly as a whole bunch of extra TDs, maybe 15 TDs could be uh, as high as uh, as 19, is something that will be, you know, obsessed over in Leinster House, to your question. Is it a good thing? You know, I'm not really sure. It's either a good thing or, uh, or a bad thing, Thank You Will it improve our political system? Uh, I wouldn't have uh, thought so. Will it necessarily disimprove it? Not sure about that either. I think it just is. Jennifer, the government of the day has a bit of leeway in working within the
2: guidelines set out, but not the guidelines, the rules, in fact, set out by the Constitution. So our listeners may remember that back in the wake of the crash in 2010, 2011, there was a general pulling in of belts uh, that went on both in terms of the number of, of ministers that were allowed, or junior ministers allowed in the government, but also the number of TDs. So there was a slight reduction at that point of five or six because that was allowed within the within the given rules. So... This government and this Dáil can choose to max out, and I think the upper limit is something like 18 additional seats, or go for a more minimal approach. And we've already heard, or I've already seen on that that oracle of of wisdom, the letters page of the Irish Times, some complaints that TDs are just going to feather their own nests and provide as many additional seats as possible, probably, as Pat says, in the interests of uh, holding on to their own ones at the next election.
3: Yeah, indeed. And there, like you said, there is that flexibility there. I mean, I think the limits are it will be at least nine seats and up to 19 extra seats uh, in the Dáil after the next general election. And where this is coming through, I suppose, is the Electoral Commission um, via the census. So the, the under the Constitution at present, there has to be, I think, one TD for every, and this is the flexibility, for every 20,000 20, to 30,000 um, people. And last April, the CSO estimated population to be around 5 million. Um, and in 2016, I think it was around 4.74 million. And look, obviously, we all know why the census is done. You know, it's to, for the obvious reasons, but it's also, you know, an indicator of the needs of the country, like for the next decade or so, you know, what will our housing needs be? What will the education needs be? How many hospitals will be needed? How many schools will be needed? And with all of that comes, I think, the expectation that that would require more representation in the doll, um, and I would expect it to kind of be on on the the higher limit, um, in terms of the number of extra TDs. But personally, I, I I don't think it's a it's a bad thing, um, I I think it's a good thing if you have more people, if they're like I said, more needs, more schools, more hospitals, all that kind of stuff. Then naturally, I think it follows there should be a higher level of political representation for those people there's a there's a general impression
2: again some of it coming from the latest page of the Irish Times pat that we are that we are overrepresented now i was having a look at the european averages there um before uh, before we started recording our podcast here today and we're really not particularly out of line there's a touch of the touch of the father ted rule applies here some countries are very small and some are very far away but the general rule is that the, the extremely small European countries, perhaps not surprisingly, have um, have more members per capita, um, places like Malta and Luxembourg, and the very large countries, the France's, the Germany's and the Spain's, uh, it, you tend to need an awful lot more votes to elect a single member of parliament. But actually... The countries that are kind of like us, or maybe even that we aspire to being like, the Nordic countries, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, they're more or less the same. But the difference that was pointed out by some of those erudite letter writers is that some of those countries actually have a proper system of local government as well. And the doll is part of a broader democratic apparatus. And one of the criticisms since forever, as far as I remember, of our Dáil is that it's too locally concerned and it supplants things which should be, done, should be do, could be done better. By local government, if local government had real teeth. That's
0: right, Hugh. <laughs> 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 Moving I on. I think there's an important. I think <laughs> there's an well important made. point well, that I'm just, you approach. I, okay. Uh, in in that question, if indeed it was a question, and it's that you know there isn't a m- marked difference in demographic weightings and electoral representation and so forth between Ireland and many countries in Europe. But I think we are distinctive in 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 two respects. Um, one is our electoral system, and the second way is in the way that our that voters use our electoral system, that is to say, in our political culture, which is highly localized, which is highly responsive to the desires of voters. And doesn't have many correctives to what voters may want their politicians to do, but which may not necessarily be in the long-term national interest of uh, of everybody. So, if you take the example of um, of, of of the simple example of planning of objections, every TD. I mean, Sinn Féin come in for criticism, for advocating for more housing and then objecting to lots of uh, housing developments. But, the, but you know, to a greater or lesser extent, all parties and all politicians do it. They all uh, object or support objections, or very many of them uh, certainly uh, object or... Um, uh, are, are are lend their support to objections to big housing developments because many of their constituents are. Uh, you know, many of us might very much favour uh, lots of new houses and apartments being building to alleviate the housing crisis, but we don't necessarily uh, want it to happen next door to us, and uh, and the polit- politicians do that because if they didn't do it, they would be a savaged by their opponents and be uh, deserted by their by many of their supporters. So I think it's, you know, and I've always thought that this is the, um, you know, one of the necessary caveats to that fascinating conversation, which I hope we have someday, Hugh, about potential electoral reform. Is that I have a suspicion that the Irish voter would use a reformed electoral system in the exact same way that he and she use the uh, the current uh, electoral system. And I think that is more, that goes more to a question of political culture as opposed to the, the architecture of the political system, as it were.
2: Yeah, there's definitely a question of, of chicken and egg there. I did notice looking at those European numbers that the, the country that has the the, the heaviest representation, the most representatives for its population is Malta, which is actually the only other country in Europe that has the same electoral system as we do. Uh, another gift from the departing British administration uh, when it left. Now, anybody who's been following Maltese politics, as I'm sure all our listeners have over the last few years, will know that it's not really something to aspire to. There's all kinds of corruption and graft and indeed assassinations and all kinds of worry worrying stuff uh, going on there. But I do wonder um f- for from both of your perspectives and your jobs as political correspondents I'll uh, put this to to you Jennifer you have this kind of privileged seat literally um in the dol you sit there in this uh box looking down at them um as they go about their business um is what you see in your view uh democracy working as we would like it to is it an impressive process?
3: Wow, what a question. I did not expect that today. Um, fun fact, we do sit in this kind of box. It's not a box, it's kind of a row above where the Corliss sits. Sometimes, I don't think you can really see it on the camera. And I think it can accommodate around 20 journalists. And I, sometimes I sit in the middle. I'm always afraid that my pen is going to roll over and knock off Ciancorla's <laughs> head. Or then I'm going to fall over my way out the door. Uh, anyway, that's just an aside for people to think we're sitting there, you know, very dignified. Not me. Um, am I impressed by it? It depends on the day. It depends on the debate. Sometimes I look at what some of the stuff that's said, and I think this is just like through the looking glass stuff. You know, this is crazy. But no, by and large, I I am, and I think, I think um, Irish democracy is is, is functioning well. I actually, think we maybe we do better than we give ourselves credit for. We we have a habit of talking ourselves down sometimes, especially when it comes to Irish politics. And there's a lot there to be criticised. Um, and there's a lot there also in terms of, the, like I said, the tone of the debates, the content of some of the debates. But from my perspective, from from where I'm sitting, yeah, and when you think about a country like Malta, you know, you you reference, you know, our job as journalists, you know, we know what's happening to journalists in Malta. It's terrifying, you know, and democracy does not function like that over there. Um, And we don't have that here. So actually, yeah, I think there's a lot to be grateful for. I'm um, speaking of
2: the quality of debate, Pat. There's a bit of a kerfuffle over a, um, a parliamentary interaction, not in the Dáil but in the in the Shannad. Over the last few days, there's been um, some debates going on about introducing legislation to govern commercial surrogacy, which there is no law governing, as I understand it, at the moment in in, in Ireland at the moment. And um, one of the participants, Senator Sharon Keogan. Um, made some statements which caused some uh, some strong reaction and some debate afterwards about whether it was w- what she said was acceptable. I wasn't quite clear about what was being argued about what would be done about it. Should it be deemed not to be acceptable? I thought parliamentary privilege is a fairly fundamental kind of principle. What do you make of all of that? Does it does it is it a subject worthy of debate or what was going on there? Is it worthy of note?
0: Yeah, I think that this was part of. Um uh, debate on the assisted human reproduction bill, which will attempt for amongst other things for the first time to bring in uh, laws governing surrogacy because there 's currently no laws uh, governing surrogacy the government 's intention, as I understand it, is to ban commercial surrogacy in Ireland, where women are paid to have children for um, uh, for for other women and um uh so there's a debate going on uh, uh, about this at the moment now the reality of it is that most irish parents at the moment who avail of surrogacy options commercial surrogacy by the way is banned in most of the world um certainly all over europe but it's not banned in a small number of places including actually ukraine which people may have been reading about at the moment because there is you know a number of people have been left in a very difficult circumstances uh, where they they are, have employed surrogate moms in Ukraine to have uh, babies, which they wish to bring to Ireland. Then and obviously, that's very complicated uh, and 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 dangerous situation uh, at the moment. But it is there. There, there is. I I wrote about this a while ago when i got my hands on a briefing note from the department of justice for the members of dol committee which were going to be uh, which were going to be looking at this and which expressed in very strong terms the um you know the government's policy position of being opposed to commercial surrogacy for fears of um of exploitation of of uh, of women and uh, and so forth and this briefing paper which i think Jen wrote about as well was uh one of the questions it was raising was about how you know the state should Assist or otherwise the adoption of babies who were born in, uh, in 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 the Ukraine and other places where commercial surrogacy is allowed. Given that it was something that was banned here, did they wish to? Does the state wish to effectively promote it or facilitate it elsewhere? Because these are all very difficult questions, and for many people who are involved in those sort of situations, tremendously. You know, emotionally charged questions, and there was a discussion in the Senate uh, about this. We'll get into the details of it now, but which one senator, Sharon Kogan, was accused by some of her colleagues of uh, of making some, um, uh, at the very least, insensitive and uh, and perhaps some quite crass uh, comments towards some uh, towards some witnesses. Uh, actually, it was at the committee. I think that uh, that they they. They'd come in for for a hearing at. And our distinguished colleague, Una Malali wrote a piece on Monday uh, about the pointing to the some of the statements previously made by Senator Keoghan and uh, critiquing them and posing the question of what should be done uh, uh, about this. Now, my own view for what it's worth is that, you know, people should certainly attempt to discuss sensitive questions in a sensitive manner and in a manner befitting the weighty legislative responsibilities that they have to make laws for the rest of us, but at the same time i'm I'm slightly uncomfortable with the the notion that uh you know legislators should should be told there are certain things that they can't you know that they can't express as long as all that is done in in honestly and in good faith and as part of a a constructive attempt. To contribute to the legislative process, then I think it would be a peculiar path to go down to uh, tell people that there are things that they can't say as long as they're
2: said in that regard. Yeah, what do you think about this, Janice? I mean, as Pat says, you've you, you've written about it before. This is a contentious issue. There are critics, uh, very vocal critics, coming from different political perspectives. There's a there's a there's a conservative religious perspective on this. There's a um, there's a fami- there's a feminist perspective on it which sees it as um, as as exploitation um there are uh, there is evidence of pretty awful practices in some parts of the world um where 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 this is carried out so it is a you know it is a it is a live a live debate um literally so I, I one of the things I'm sure of uh, unsure of was did, did anybody else apart from Sharon Kilgan you know express those those concerns in, in during the debate
3: um yeah, there have been witnesses who spoke about kind of how the whole point of these discussions and this legislation is to address concerns like that. I think um, people probably, some people may have looked at this or heard about this kind of argument at the committee and seen it in and of itself. Like there is a context around it um, and I'll be as brief as I can. So this committee is set up, obviously, to look at international surrogacy. There's no legal framework uh, in place at present, um, but the reality is it happens it's very difficult, if not impossible, to legislate for this internationally because it would require basically an agreement between all the relevant countries and each country has its own different thinking about it. So that's nowhere near in the future. Um, on the other hand, you have the the special rapporteur for children who is in one of the committee meetings saying that the, we can't put our head in the sand on this. This is happening. And the more you put your head in the sand and the more you pretend that it's not, the more these, you know, potentially exploitative practices could be allowed to uh, manifest so what he would be arguing for is, is less kind of, of a legislation, more of a framework that will govern it, which will give comfort to all the different parties involved. So that's what they're looking at at the moment. You know, how can we address international surrogacy? If it can't be legislated for, what kind of framework could be put in place? If there's a framework, would it be, for example, the court system? Would you put a judge in place? Would there be a pre-birth order? Would there be a post-birth order recognising the intended parents? So this is all the conversation. They've had four meetings. the The problem that's arisen in the last couple of meetings has been other committee members have felt i suppose it it comes down to language so i don't think i don't see it as somebody's free speech and someone being told you're not allowed to say that what i have noticed is that in this instance in actually in this committee meeting sharon kilgan was talking to a number of witnesses this meeting in particular was hearing from parents who had gone through the process and all the difficulties that they'd faced um, and there was a number of times in which she interrupted them. There was one witness who was talking about her experience, uh, you know, as an LGBT person um, and the importance of language uh, in the debates, because, you know, at one stage, Yaron Kogan talked about Ukraine being a supermarket. Um, and she was referring, she said, to comments from a representative for children's rights in Ukraine. She was talking about kind of erasing the birth mother um, and kind of these really strong statements um, and sometimes when the witnesses were talking about the importance of using the correct language and not using inflammatory language uh, and, you know, contextualising that in their experience as LGBT people, how much language matters, there were times in which she interrupted them and asked them to just finish the question. And it was kind of an unusual thing happened then when things got a bit heated and she turned around to the representative for the Irish Gay Dads and said, Garod, you know, you're so lucky to be here. You've no idea how lucky you are to be here and let me tell you why that's when it was cut off and suspended and when it was brought back she seemed to be suggesting that there was another group who also wanted to appear before the committee and they weren't let it appear therefore he should consider himself very lucky so that's the context in which it happened that the argument was about language the argument was about not you know going into something by using an inflammatory term it's about having a level head and it's about kind of being respectful towards the witnesses who are at the committee, which, let's be honest, has not always happened. In fact, usually is the other way around, you know.
2: Well, exactly. Exactly. All, all the time we see disrespect towards, towards people at committee level, don't we?
3: You know, we we're talking about children, you're talking about the rights of a child, you know, that's serious stuff, um, especially when you have children now that are essentially stateless for a certain number of years. So that's I'm just trying to give the context for what happened there. That That's what transpired. And I I think maybe some people looking in said, She's not being allowed to say that she is opposed to the commercialisation um, of surrogacy, which is absolutely her right to say, completely. The context was how, how that committee developed in terms of the language and the interruptions.
2: Are there rules or should there be rules about any of that? There are rules. I don't
3: think so. I think the more rules you put in place in terms of the committees, you can but they have rules like you can only speak for, you know, they deviate out differently. Every member gets five minutes. Um and actually, you shouldn't, I don't think there should be rules not to like... I mean, it should,
0: sorry to jump in, but shouldn't it be up to the, the chairman or chairwoman, sure. chairperson yeah. to run the committee? Which by and large, in my experience of watching them, they, uh, they they probably do. I mean, you were watching the committee, Jen, you'd have a better idea, but...
3: Uh, oh, she did step in, yeah, yeah. yeah. Kathleen Function was chairing and, and she didn't, you know, that's why she suspended the meeting twice because she couldn't get order at the meeting. Basically, it was descending into a, a shouting match between... Uh, senator Sharon Kogan uh, Senator Lynn Ruan and Mary Siri Carney Finnegalls Mary Siri Carney um and that's why it was that's why it was suspended um, and you know what Kathleen Function was saying there are people looking into this debate who've been waiting years and years for it to be had and this is what they see and there's she that she makes an excellent point um, but if it comes down to a debate about this senator should be able to have you know express her opinions and this should not be an echo chamber I could not agree more Absolutely every side should have the chance to get their point across and it's completely okay to have a different opinion. It's healthy, actually. The problem is when there is language used and kind of this atmosphere in which it becomes charged when it shouldn't be. That's all.
2: Yeah, I mean, it sounds to me like there was kind of double entendres possibly, which which some people might read into that. But I mean, the other thing that occurs to me is people have a right to be offensive.
0: That is not a universally held view, though, Hugh. That may be a view that, that you hold. but And people don't have a right not to be offended. and It is a legal fact that people do not have a not right not Twitter. to be uh, offended. But, you know, there is, <laughs> you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know by saying that there is, uh, you know, there are many people, uh, some of whom, as Jen says, are vocal on social media, who who believe that you shouldn't be allowed to be offensive to people because they perceive it as a type of violence, I guess.
2: Well that's why I wonder is this is this case a kind of harbinger for the future, perhaps a troubling harbinger for the future, as that those kinds of debates about about free speech, um, which have become much more central in, in other countries, but but less so here perhaps so far, maybe there's a harbinger of things to come.
3: Maybe, but like also you could just debate in a respectful way. <laughs> you know, it's lost on some people. Like just get your point across. You don't have to like insult people along the way. That's all.
0: I'm not sure to the extent that this is much of a live issue. I don't know what Jen thinks, but how much of it is a live issue in Leinster House? To be honest, I, I no. think within Leinster House, you know, it, it's simply seen as another row at a committee. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, I, I, I guess. Obviously, our colleague uh, una Malali made an issue of it in her in her column, but it's not something I've heard from anyone around uh, okay, High, so well, on
2: our on our tour of matters parliamentary and developmental, I can't help but note that uh, the leader. Uh, editorial in the Irish Times today comes out very strongly in favour of reducing the voting age um, from 18 to either 17 or 16, perhaps staggering it first down to 17 and then down to 16, which apparently is happening in countries across Europe and and across the world at the moment. Uh, Jen, what do you make of that?
3: Yeah, I think Pat and I have totally different um, opinions on this. (laughs) See, this is good. This is healthy debate. We're allowed to have our own opinions and I promise not to insult you, Pat, over that. Um, I think it's a great idea. Honestly I do. I think anything that um encourages greater interest in politics at a younger age. Now, not that that's what's going to happen by the way. Like I'm not saying that's going to be the natural result. Maybe young people will continue not to care, um as is their right, and sometimes who could blame them? But, you know, I think anything that that does encourage that is is to be welcomed. Um although what I will say is I have noticed, you know, I've got younger sisters and younger brothers um, and, you know, I'd meet their friends. I, I do think that younger people are more engaged and more interested in politics than they're given credit for. Um, so I will say that, certainly the, the younger people, younger people I know, I sense so the old thing that, um, are, are engaged and aware of what's going on. So, I, yeah, I'd be all for it, but I uh, I know Pat has a different view.
2: Well, I know that Pat believes that we
0: should increase the voting age to 45, <laughs> um, but I,
2: maybe just take this take
0: the case for this on its merits, Pat. I, I believe that our young people are our greatest resource, Hugh. Right. He believes that okay. children are the future. He believes that children are the future. Yes, clearly, Pat. Pat but being closely that. acquainted with some teenagers, um, uh, obviously, you've got to draw a line. You draw a line somewhere, whether it's at 16, 17, 18, 18, or indeed 45. You seem to me to be, the, uh, uh, be, be round about the appropriate spot for it.
2: I mean, the fact is, you can do lots of other things at 16, can't you? I mean, you're treated like an adult in a range of different ways. Yeah, and you can
3: leave school. Get a job. Can't drive. You can pay tax. Why not vote?
2: The political scientist uh, David Runciman, um, former host of the um, much-missed uh, Talking Politics podcast in the UK, made a more radical proposal, which was that um, all children, I think, from the age of five upwards, should be allowed to vote. And he was almost implying, I think, at times in making that that, uh, that case, that people over 60 or 65 should should not be allowed to vote, basically because they have far too much power and they're making decisions which aren't going to affect them because they'd be long gone on people who will have to suffer the effects of those of those consequences. What mm-hmm. do you think?
3: Think of the Count Centre. Think of the crack in the Count Centre. It will be wild, like crazy. Like, I'm up for it. But also, that's ridiculous. Like, come on, like, really? No, we're not really talking about this.
0: Are we? I, I once partook in a conversation with uh, a number of people who were firmly of the view that because they viewed themselves uh, as um, significant taxpayers, that they should have a greater say over how those taxes were uh, were spent, and that therefore they should get several votes, uh, whereas you know the rest of us should have our number of votes reduced in accordance with our uh, with our means. So I, I I didn't agree with that either.
2: Enough about your uh, visits to Fine Gael Common. Um, <laughs> we we have other subjects to discuss, but we're going to do them after this quick break.
1: Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable sky broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa, gaming in the bedroom, or swiping in the bathroom. Hey, get out of here! I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable sky broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base.
2: And you're very welcome back. Um, turf. Jen, turf is a subject of a war, um, if that's not Mm. too bad a pun. It seems to me to be in a long line of a particular type of Irish political mini-crisis down the years. I remember the rod licence dispute and the TV deflectors. And the, the structure of these particular crises is always the same. A decision is made up in Dublin by stupid people who don't understand the real lives of real people in rural Ireland. And it causes uproar that slowly filters or perhaps sometimes quickly filters back up through the political system until the fight breaks out and it becomes a real crisis. Is that basically how this one has, has played out so
3: far? Oh, interesting. I mean, look, it's obviously, a, there's a very small number of people, I think, uh, in the context of the the wider population, who would be affected by this. But there are still a lot of people affected by this. And yeah, you're right. Like there are, like when I did my, I did a piece at the start of the year, like top 10 things to watch out for this year in politics that are going to be big issues. It did not have turf on the list. Um, but like nonetheless, like I think ter- it's such an interesting one really because it's been part of our landscape, um, used to heat homes for generations and generations. And it's controversial, obviously, because of its effects on the environment and air quality, and all that kind of stuff. And we kind of had like a hint that this was going to happen last September when Eamon Ryan, I think he said there was going to be a new standard for domestic solid fuels. And he hinted basically that there would be a a new regulatory regime. So we're seeing the shape of that regulatory regime now. And what he's proposed is ban on the sale and distribution of turf from this September. Yeah, from this September. So, I mean, really essentially what it comes down to is the politicians, particularly in the Midlands and Western um, counties, are saying that this will affect homes who, uh, well, obviously the people who use it to heat their homes, but obviously people who would uh, sell it, like small-scale cutting and selling between neighbours, effectively. And what Eamon Ryan is saying, and what the government seem to be saying is small-scale cutting and selling between neighbours won't be impacted. But this debate just seems to keep going on over and over again, The TDs say this can't happen. The minister seems to be saying this won't happen, but there's no actual, like, flesh on the bone. There's no detail um, on this yet. And we've also heard Malcolm Noonan saying the people who use, you know, heavy machinery, um, you know, uh, selling it online or in urban areas, that they will be subject to the ban. Um, I think what's needed here is just a little bit of common sense. um, And, you know, I think that's actually what will happen. I think sense will win the day. um, And families who rely on small-scale turf uh, to kind of tide themselves over for the winter, or maybe who exchange it in communities, that they won't be affected by this. And perhaps a better way to look at it would have been a phasing out of this rather than saying, in September, this is what's going to happen, and then going on the radio and saying, I'm not going to prosecute your granny, which kind of sounds a bit ridiculous because kind of is a bit ridiculous. Um, you know, so I, I think that's it. But there is a, there's a wider context. And the reason why they're doing this is because... I think it is if they don't do this, then they can't proceed with a nationwide ban on the sale of smoky coal, you know, because companies would say, Well, you're still allowing X and Y fossil fuel, you can't have this ban. And they want to do that. So this is part of that.
2: Pat, you're the you're the only participant in this discussion who's not a deracinated cosmopolitan urbanite a non-turf cutter. You're the only person here who's spent their boyhood out in the bog footing and cutting and whatever it else 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 it is you do. You've also talked a lot on this podcast over the last few months about the success, the tangible success of the Green Party in bringing its proposals to government and getting them into legislation for the future. So I just wonder in, in relation to this, are we looking at something which was badly handled in terms of messaging and, and as Jen suggests, of implementation? Or is this kind of the rubber hitting the road when those green proposals actually start having an impact on communities who don't like what's happening.
0: I'll come to that in a minute, Hugh, but just first let me recall, you mentioned the rod license controversy earlier, which you, you and I remember, uh, Jen, certainly, uh, Jen certainly doesn't, I'm sure, but in the early 1990s, at the same time uh, as the, the rod license, which was a controversy over having to get a license for your fishing rod, uh, was raging, the sale of condoms without a prescription from a doctor for their use, was illegal in Ireland. And uh, the Virgin Megastore, uh, on whatever key it was, uh, was prosecuted for for selling condoms over the counter there. The fine, if I recall correctly, was paid by a then little-known band called uh, you, too, and this <laughs> excited a great uh, a great array of correspondence on the aforementioned Irish times letters page and my favorite letter at the time in the heading of the heading on the series of letters was the case of the virgin condom and uh, one letter writer whom, whose name I must look up at some stage on our on our archive suggested that the solution to the uh, the the solution to the case of the virgin condom was surely to restrict the sale of condoms to holders of rod licences. Um, you are correct. That was quite a detour. Well done.
3: <laughs> wow, I am gobsmacked.
0: You're correct <laughs> that under my nails uh, still remains the uh, the yeah the microscopic remains of uh, of the turf that I caught and footed as uh, as. A youngster, and this course gives me a special insight uh, into, uh, into this particular political controversy. It's what people nowadays would call your lived experience, Pat. <laughs> All right, you can call it what you want, but uh, I I suspect that anyone who spent as much of their youth on the bog uh, as uh, as I did, in fairness, that wasn't uh, an awful lot, uh, would be viewing a ban on turf cutting as a merciful delivery. But anyway, um, my view is to be honest, that uh, this is a controversy in and of itself. It is, it is you know, it, it is real. The opposition and the emotions exercised by it, aroused by it, are, are real. And it is a clear and present political difficulty for, uh, for the government to, to, to deal with. But in a way, it's also a proxy for the wider green agenda And for the decarbonisation imperative that incidentally all political parties uh, accept and will be a feature of politics, not just here, but across the West for the next decade to two decades uh, at least. And that will be extremely difficult because you're right, I've talked about the success of the Green Party, getting stuff on the statute books, first of all, getting it into the programme programme, for government using its leverage in the cre- at the time of the creation of the government to get the decarbonisation uh, stuff into the programme for government, getting commitments to legislation and getting that legislation on the books. But as you say, the rubber is now beginning to hit the road, and this is just one of a series of political difficulties that will, I think, be thrown up to it because... There is no way of decarbonising without having a direct impact on people's lives. And in many cases, that will be seen as, uh, as an unbearable burden or an, at least an inconvenience uh, to people. So, you know, I suspect what will happen on this, I don't believe the in independent front page this morning said that the future of the government was threatened by the turf wars. I don't think that is the case. I, I, I think a compromise will be reached that stretches out the, the removal of turf from, uh, from large-scale use, certainly over a couple of years. but I think this problem of public and therefore political opposition to climate action is going to recur throughout this uh, government and probably the next one.: Alas. Point, uh, Jen, for for today.
2: I mean, you've been writing, in fact, all the political team have been writing about the the shadow that has been hanging over this government, particularly as it moves closer to this point, this unprecedented point of the rotation of the shock. Michael Martin goes out one door and Leo Varadkar comes in another and there's a consequent cabinet reshuffle. And it's really, it's the pivot, the fulcrum point of the term of this government. But yes, there was this unexploded device in the background which was the of file on Leo Varadkar's leaking of a document to a friend of his um, who at the time uh, was involved with a rival medical organisation. This was a, um, an agreement with um, on, on medical issues. Um, without, like, without retreading all the detail of that, the fear was that this had been with the Garda for quite a long time and nobody knew the timescale, and nobody knew when the gardi were going to complete their work and then pass on their finished work to the Director of Public Prosecutions. That has now happened. Does that mean the cloud, there's prospects of it lifting, or is there still the threat of it still being with the DPP by the time we get to the change of Taoiseach in December?
3: Um, the clouds are still there. They're just a different shape. Um, yeah, it was interesting. I mean, we had a piece, uh, a column in uh, that I did on Saturday uh, covering for the bold Pat Leahy, who was away, um, in which I said that the Garnet investigation was obviously taking a long time and there's a lot of frustration about it and, you know, what this meant for the next few months. Lo and behold.
2: Obviously, they read us, Jen. They listen, must have read us. They said, Oh, Jesus, she's right. we oh better do God. something about and that.
3: This, we better send that file. Uh, yeah, I mean, I do have my questions, but anyway. Um so, yeah, so th- that happened on Saturday. The guards confirmed they sent the file to the DPP. Um, and like there were some interesting headlines over the weekend. Um, and look, I'm going to be honest with you, there was a bit of briefing going on. The usual spinning of the political machines, kind of like the relief in Finnegale, and and, um, you know, these figures from the DPP's annual report, which show the vast majority of uh, files are dealt with quickly in a matter of months. And certainly I think the last time there was only like eight files that took more than a year um, to to deal with. And this is all kind of the the context around the weekend that this is going to be resolved soon was the the, the mood music being projected from government or certain parts of government buildings. Um, The truth of the matter is, Hugh, nobody knows. Nobody knows how long it's going to take the DPP. People have speculated that they'll put this case to the top of the list um, and deal with it very quickly. I don't know. Is is the truth? Is that? I have no idea. Nobody knows for a fact. And the DPP is obviously independent of government. um, And I think they will just continue with their work on the basis that they always continue uh, with their work in whatever system they have there. So, you know, I do think that the longer it goes on, the more problematic it becomes. Because even if you have a case that... Let's say it is all resolved by the changeover on December 15th um, and everybody, you know, that, that can happen. And let's say there's no charges brought by the DPP. They do, they decide not to, there's no case to prosecute. But let's say that they only decide to do that, that. That only comes in eight weeks before then. You still have this preceding months where the question will be asked of all of the members of the coalition. You know, this thing is really dragging on. Um, why is it dragging on? And also, are you comfortable voting for Leo Varadkar? If this investigation is still uh, in the open or, or still ongoing, and and that's a difficulty, and it does put a, a massive cloud over it for Gael. <clears throat> but as to whether, um, as to whether it will stymie it or kibosh it, I just don't know at this stage. Nobody knows how long it's going to take. Um, and anybody who says they do, unless it's the DPP herself, they're they're lying. So, Pap,
2: just just your point of view on that. If it's still with the DPP in December. Is that a really significant problem? Or I, yes. I think Bill Martin is already indicating that it shouldn't be. But that yes, not it will be. It, right, it,
0: it? It, it, it will be an enormous political problem, and not just if we get to December. I think basically from September on, I think politics begins to orient itself towards the changeover that takes place in December, and that will be a greater and greater part of the political discourse. It will take up more energy. Uh, and so forth. And if it is the case that this issue is still unresolved by the time we get to then, then I think it is a. I think it is a really, uh, really big problem, both for, for Fianna Fáil and for, uh, for Fianna Gael. But I do think that is very unlikely for two reasons. First of all, as Jen says, if you look at the statistics from the DPP's office, the vast majority of stuff is done within uh, a couple of months. It's still, it's simply not the case, as some people have suggested, that the DPP takes months and months and months and months to make, uh, to make most of its uh, decisions. So ordinarily, you would expect a case like this to be, um, uh, to be decided upon by, uh, by the DPP. Uh, within the space of a couple of months. The second reason I think that that will happen is that the DPP is resolutely independent of politics. And if she decides that Mr. Veriker should be prosecuted, that there's a reasonable chance of a conviction and that a prosecution is in the public interest, then she she will do so. I've no doubt about that. And that would mean the end of Leo Vryker's political Career um, certainly for the moment, and probably uh, and probably for good, pending the uh, pending the trial. So the DPP is, as I say, resolutely independent of politics, but she is not ignorant of politics, and she will know that if she if this isn't resolved by the time she gets to the autumn, then far from being removed from politics the DPP would be right at the centre of politics. And I, I. even were it not the case that ordinarily you would expect a case like this to be resolved within a couple of months, and that is the case, but even were it not, uh, I think she would be putting this to the top of her agenda so as to protect the DPP uh, and her independence from being dragged into, uh, into political controversy. So I would be amazed if we're still waiting for words on this by the time we get to September.
2: Very interesting. We'll see what happens and then you can check back on Pat's prediction there to see if, if it proves to be correct. Which, I'll uh, tell you
3: what I'll do, Hugh. I'll write a column about it. I'll say this DPP investigator, in <laughs> the next day.
2: Within within hours, something will happen. Yeah, your you, your power knows no limits, Jen. Listen, we will leave it there. Thanks very much, Jen. Thanks also to Pat today. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We're going to be back very soon. Uh, you can mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.